So it's funny when we talk about intersectionality, if you poll taxes, I don't know if everyone knows what those are, but poll taxes came along in the Southern states because, you know, after emancipation, after the Voting Rights Act was put in place, there there were just ways that folks were trying to keep Black folks from voting, you know, the powers that be, if you will. And so they instituted poll taxes. And so sometimes you had to be able to read, you know, there's a reading test or you had to pay to vote. And so um, they were, you know, different litmus tests, if you will. And so one of the things my great-grandfather had to do was pay, I think it was $2. And my dad told me that was a day's wages at the time. But he paid the $2 so that he could vote. And my grandmother always kept that. She laminated it so that she could share it with, you know, share it with us. Yeah, there are just so many different things that feed and inform. And, and we're seeing it now with COVID-19. And I say that, you know, disease is a great equalizer, but pandemics reveal injustice um, and inequities. It's, yeah. So we're still kind of exposing and living the poll taxes, if you will. Born in St. Louis and brought up in Dallas, Texas by her doctor father and teacher mother in an environment that nurtured her generosity of spirit and set her on a path to a life in philanthropy is this week's guest, Yvonne Moore. Influenced by paternal grandmothers, success-focused parents and competitive siblings, a college education was always expected. In part one, we cover how her mother imbued her service-driven principles, sharing time, talent and treasure, her first experience of racism in college in West Texas, and the broader historic socio-cultural context of racism, America's original sin, and its connection to the current U.S. electoral system. We discuss the challenges faced as an African-American in the South, the social injustice, poll taxes, and voting rights, and the socially skewed injustice of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yvonne opens up about living with fear of the unknown and using therapy to overcome it. We then chart her serendipitous path to a career in philanthropy, navigating policy changes to improve society, as she breaks down the structure of the philanthropic sector. In part two, we dive deep into Yvonne's amazing work in the philanthropic sector, representing family foundations. I hope you're inspired by the generous spirit, social conscience, and philanthropic heart of Yvonne Moore. Yvonne, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We're very excited to have you on the show. And it's a big thank you to Natalie Bridgman-Fields for originally suggesting that we speak to you. I know. She's amazing. We spoke last week. Yeah. Okay. So we said before to other guests, before we uh, explore your life in detail and what you do and the work you do and and where your life journey is taking you, we'd like to understand more about our guests' childhood and early part of their journey. And in your case, before finding your path towards philanthropy. I believe you were born in St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis. Yep. St. Louis. Is this, how do you pronounce it properly? Is it St. Louis or St. Louis? I say St. Louis. Yeah, St. Louis. Okay. I think movies and musicals have said, you know, old St. Louis, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you were born in St. Louis, Missouri uh, to a surgeon father and a teacher mother and was basically brought up in Texas uh, where yes. they were born. I believe they were born in East Texas. And you grew up in Dallas. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So... Could you maybe just tell us a bit about the parental support of your father and your mother, the influence they had on you, the direction you've gone in was impacted by their their guidance or influence? Yeah. So I think one of the things I always like to share is that I was born in St. Louis because my father was actually doing his residency. Um, and actually, Homer G. Phillips was actually a hospital. It's actually no longer open now. But it was only it was one of the few places that Black surgeons or Black doctors could actually train. 
And so he went to, went to school in Tennessee and then went to St. Louis to actually do his residency. And so my mom, God love her, she's always worked in either special education. And she actually worked, was actually a teacher in juvenile justice system in St. Louis. And so moved to Texas after. And I think knowing those stories and knowing the work that they did was actually quite powerful for me and growing up and figuring out, you know, kind of what I wanted to do. You know, both of my grandmothers, maternal and paternal. I always tell this story because the the work of philanthropy comes very naturally to me. Some communities may not call it philanthropy. You know, the Bible or the Christian Bible talks about time, talent, and treasure. And actually, and talking with Muslim friends, there's actually also, you know, something in the Quran that talks about, you know, tithing and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I grew up kind of in that atmosphere. And I think both of my parents were actually, my mom especially, I was always a curious child. <laughs> I think I remain a curious adult. And it was funny because when I was thinking about today, I actually thought about, you know, curiosity and how they actually kind of nurtured that. And I used to actually drive my family crazy, especially my oldest brother, because we would take these trips across country. And I was always, I didn't appreciate them until I was grown or until I was an adult. It was like, you know, can we just fly and get there? And they used to love to drive across the country. But then there were these, I don't know if you know, so AAA. No. And if you have a car, American Automobile Association. Oh, right. Yeah. So AAA. So they used to have before the, you know, the world of GPS, when you just like type it into your phone now and it tells you where to go. They used to put these packets together. So if you were traveling somewhere, they, you'd tell them where you were going. They'd put together these packets and they'd have all these books about, you know, all the sites of interest on the way. And those were like my favorite part. <laughs> and I would find, like, we actually made some amazing stops on the way. And how many siblings? I have five siblings in total. So my, mine is a blended family. So my parents divorced when I was a senior in high school, junior, senior in high school. And then my dad remarried. So we're a blended family. And my siblings, we, we adore with all the, you know, whatever family drama happened, we always, and we still to this day enjoy each other. So yeah, you know, curiosity, you know, blended family, all those things kind of lend themselves to who I am today. So, so yeah, I mean, I could, you know, I've got a million stories, so. And what about the, I mean, with having a, a teacher? Oh my gosh. As a mother and a surgeon, as a, as a, a father, presumably there were both uh, high, had high standards and high expectations of you. Yeah, actually, my grandmother also. <laughs> and yeah, and and what were their dual roles that they played within your uh, in your upbringing? You know, so my maternal or my paternal grandmother was also a teacher and a professor later. Um, and that was actually, you know, I before E except after C, like those kinds of things that you actually remember. She was always an English, you know, grammar teacher. My mother, special education, and just the patience that she had with young people. She usually taught in high school, which, first of all, I respect teachers so much, I don't think I could do it. And I think actually, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's really my grandmother where the, the value and the importance of education comes from, because I, I think I mentioned to you before, like neither one of my parents, you know, grew up in East Texas, neither one of them could use the public library when they were growing up. Crazy. What year would that have been? So this is so, let's see, my parents born in 35, 37, so 40s and, yeah, 40s and 50s, right? So neither could use the public library, but both of them were, you know, college educated. My dad grad school, my mother is specialist in, in special education, you know, certified specialist in education, special education. And my grandmother's actually 
So my maternal grandmother was a domestic worker, what we would call today as a domestic worker. She cleaned white folks' houses her entire life. And then she eventually started working at a bank. She became like the head custodian or the, you know, over the inside, you know, internal services of the bank. And she was actually the smartest businesswoman that I knew. But, you know, both of my grandmothers were actually determined to make sure that my parents got a really good education, irrespective of what you can, you know, forget about public services. Education was very, very important. Yeah, through college, you know, the just walking to school, like, let's, let's be real, I never had to... I never had to walk to school, but my, both of my parents, you know, they always show us these things. You know, I walked this far when we were going to East Texas, this far to go to school. And I was always amazed. And, and they, they very much raised city children. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but yeah, so I think it's my grandparents, it's my, my parents, their, you know, emphasis on education. It was never an expectation it was always an expectation that I would go to college, like not going to college. That wasn't a conversation we were going to ever have. (laughs) (laughs) Or I would have been afraid to have that conversation, right? So, and I really struggled in school. I was dyslexic. It showed a lot in college. And so I really had some challenges. And actually where my, my oldest brother is highly intelligent, you know, he'd make A's if he didn't, you know, B's because he didn't study, right? So he, you know, very different intellect. And so I really had to struggle and work for all of my grades and my success. But more so, it's, it's also how you treat people, right? It wasn't just the education piece, but it was how you treated people. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, there was no sleeping late on Christmas morning or Thanksgiving morning because we were too busy delivering plates and stuff to folks around town. And it was so funny because my mother had this teacher in high school who she could not stand. And she said she was the meanest teacher, but my grandmother was like, it doesn't matter. Now you're good. Take her plate and I'll see you when you get back. Like this is my mother is grown. She's got grown children almost. And my grandmother was like, it doesn't matter. Take her that plate. And she used to complain the whole entire time. But my mother still took that plate because by this time the teacher was an elderly person. She didn't have any children around. So anyway, I say that to say is, you know, it was the emphasis of edu- on education, but it's also how you treat people. It was very hard for me when I first moved to New York because, you know, people don't usually... It's not a, hey, how you doing town, right? You don't pass by people and just say, hey, how you doing? It's like, if you don't know that person, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who you are. And that was actually very hard for me because, you know, we would be somewhere. My mother would just, you know, speak to people. And I was like, who is that? And she's like, I don't know. She said, but you speak to people. You say, hello. You say, how you doing? You don't just walk by someone. So all of those things kind of, yeah, feed into who we are. And, and you're, you called it time. Time, treasure, time, talent, and treasure. Time, talent, and treasure. So, you know, following my mother to, she was in a social organization and following her to a homeless shelter to deliver food or actually serve food. Grew up in a, a social club, a social club of, you know, Black folks had their own social clubs because they weren't allowed into, you know, junior leagues of the world, if you will. And so there's this club called Jack and Jill. It's so different now. But anyway, when I was younger, it wasn't, it was more about service than anything. We used to have one fun, you know, every month we did something different and every parent and, and, you know, teenager was responsible for doing something different. And we only got one party. Everything else was service <laughs> because they were like, you have, you know, you, you have basically what's a privileged background, right? It wasn't, you know, black folks weren't really wealthy, right? This has been like the first generation in which black folks in America could actually accumulate wealth. Mm-hmm. 
right? My generation, I guess. And then, but you still, you know, there was an element of privilege, if you will. If you had more, you shared it, right? So it wasn't always about material wealth, but it was definitely about privilege and access and opportunity. And that was the thing I think that stuck with me the most, especially as I moved into philanthropy. You know, my grandmother, like I said, my maternal grandmother was super smart. And I asked her one day when I was older, I was like, why didn't you, you know, why did you just choose to clean homes? And she said that when she was growing up, the only thing she thought she could be was a nurse or a teacher. You know, no one ever told her she could be a doctor. And she was like, I didn't want to do those things. So I did what I was good at. And, you know, she, I traveled with her. It was amazing. I traveled with her. She saved money. She owned two homes. It was just, yeah, she gave back to the community. So it, it wasn't so much her position, but it actually, you know, it actually was. It wasn't her daily job, but it was her position and her respect in the community that was really very powerful. You know, on my dad's side, on my maternal, my paternal grandmother, rather, you know, she actually kept my great-grandfather, my great-grandfather's poll tax receipt. So it's funny when we talk about intersectionality, if you poll taxes, I don't know if everyone knows what those are. We used to have the poll tax in the UK when Margaret Thatcher was uh, the, the prime minister. <laughs> I did but, not yeah. actually know that. But, but let's just say it didn't go down well in Scotland. I, I, I bet, I bet. But poll taxes came along in the Southern states because, you know, after emancipation, after the Voting Rights Act was put in place, there, you know, there were just ways that folks were trying to keep Black folks from voting, basically. You know, the powers that be, if you will. And so they instituted poll taxes. And so sometimes you had to be able to read, you know, there's a reading test, or you had to pay to vote. And so um, they were, you know, different litmus tests, if you will. And so one of the things my great-grandfather had to do was pay, I think it was $2. I keep it on the wall in my office because it's just a reminder. Yeah. But it was $2. And my dad told me that was a day's wages at the time. But he paid the $2 so that he could vote. And my grandmother always kept that. She laminated it so that she could share it with, you know, share it with us. And I'm sure she, you know, she's kept it before we came along. So, so yeah, it's just, yeah, there are just so many different things that feed and inform. The social injustice is just astounding. Exactly. And, and we're seeing it now with COVID-19. Yeah. You know, I, and I say that, you know, disease is a great equalizer, but pandemics reveal injustice. Um, and inequities. It's, yeah. So we're still kind of exposing and living the poll taxes, if you will. So, yeah. Because it's um, the data, I haven't seen the latest data, but certainly it was a, a combination. We were interviewing Nasser Jaber, uh, who runs a migrant kitchen here in New York. He's a Palestinian mm. chef. And he, he was talking on Sunday just how the migrant community and minorities have been really hit so hard because they're yep. on the front line in shops, in service exactly. industries where they can't escape and they're not being given the adequate pr provisions of PPE uh, exactly. to keep them safe. Folks in the bodegas, folks in the grocery store, folks where it's all these essential workers that, you know, People would complain if they weren't there, but then they don't actually think about their own safety and protection. Question, when did that end? When did they stop that? You know what? I do not know. It's so funny. I just forgot Michelle's last name. I want to say with the Voting Rights Administration Act, but I'm actually not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. But it's so funny that you asked that because, you know, in the last, I guess, 2013, 14, the Supreme Court rolled back 
some of the Voting Rights Act protections. In 2014? I think it was 1314 when the Supreme Court actually rolled back. In other words, what they said was that, no, you know what, the same kinds of, the same kind of discrimination that was happening back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it, that kind of stuff doesn't exist anymore. And so they lightened the protections around the Voting Rights Act and actually the Voting Rights Administration Act, because there's one that talks about the voting rights and there's one actually the the process and the mechanics of how you vote. And so if you remember, I think a perfect example of, if you remember the contest, the the gubernatorial contest in Georgia, Stacey Abrams actually talked about some of these things. So Georgia actually, and, and this is the Brennan Center for Justice, did an amazing report on um, voter disenfranchisement in the country. And actually, Georgia was one of the states that they highlighted. So, so yeah, there were some things that were rolled back by the Supreme Court a few years ago. And then they're actually manifesting, you know, they manifested in the last gubernatorial races. So, yeah, and then the Electoral College, that's a whole other conversation. I'm going to bring you back to that uh, just before we, because we want to get into talk about COVID. But the one thing there... You were obviously reflecting on the, the the negative and downside, and the, as you say, it's not a great equaliser at all. Mm-hmm. But what we have seen is an emergence of people giving time, talent, and I suppose to use the same term, treasure, in this mm-hmm. in ways that we haven't. And as a philanthropist, that must make you feel very uh, encouraged and and positive and reinforce your belief in humanity in times of crisis like this. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's actually the great thing is there are folks who willingly give. You know, I was listening to the governor of New York and he was talking about, I think upwards of 60,000 folks have volunteered to come back and try to help. Um, My dad is retired now, but he was telling me that he was actually doing a podcast about COVID and kind of, you know, understanding. And when I was growing up, that was the other thing too. He used to always do these radio programs about prostate cancer. Because he's like, there's no reason for people to die from something that is actually curable. So he used to, you know, used to do these, these, I think, radio shows. Now they're podcasts, but back then they were radio shows. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, every time I get frustrated or I see something that's ridiculous on the news, I almost immediately, when I'm going down that rabbit hole, I almost immediately see something right after that that reminds me that there are people who are doing amazing things and that it's either their time, they're giving of their time, their talent, like those folks who are volunteering their time, medical professionals, or if they don't have that, you know, they're giving their money. So it's funny, and, you know, I'm, you know, Christian and practicing Christian, if you will. <laughs> so I, I'm quite a, a very faithful person. And it's funny because I always, when I think about Noah and the Bible, and that time period of the 40 days and the flood, I'm like, what did they do? Because we, right in this day and age, are just it's just all kinds of hell going on. And I'm just like the stuff. And I'm just like, how do we get to stay here? I'm like, what did Noah and them do to get a flood? <laughs> because the stuff that goes on now, the way we, the way we treat each other, you know, the conflict, the way we, you know, the way we treat the most vulnerable, especially I think about children. Yeah. So I'm always reminded that that's why we're still here. God hasn't, you know, cleansed the earth again because there are so many good people doing great things. And your show is a perfect example of that, is remembering that kind of first. Well, we just just have the joy of interviewing amazing people (laughs) and hearing their great stories. It's super helpful. So it's good. I think... (laughs) 
I think it's important in times like these to uh, allow good stories and positive impact to be uh, to find its, its channel and for people to be inspired by it. So that's why we interview people like yourself. Absolutely. So thank you all. <laughs> um, thank you. Was just going back and finish off in your childhood. Was there a defining moment or memory from your childhood that stayed with you? So I always, I always joke that I live in a world that doesn't exist and I like it here. <laughs> and I, th- I think it was actually college. I grew up in Texas, right? Texas has never been known for its, prog- maybe now, Dallas. It's never been known as a progressive state, shall we say. <laughs> maybe Austin. Austin and Dallas, I think. Yeah. I, I think those, and it's so funny because I actually, those are pretty much the only two places I would live. <laughs> Um, I, I, don't, I don't know why I don't have love for Houston, but I don't know why I have family there, but it's just different, I think. My brother used to love the state, the, the city. Anywho, I think one of the things, so I, I said that to say that I think I grew up in a bit of a bubble. And so I think my first real understanding of racism or what I later understood is, is you know, it's racism and it's, it's just kind of the way folks are grown, you know, or, or raised. I think the first one was, it was really the way folks were raised. So I was um, taking some summer courses. Well, actually, let me go back to the first story, which is... This was in Dallas. This was in... This was actually in... So let me do the, the story first for undergrad. So I was always super excited about going off to school, having a roommate, you know, the whole college experience. My other mother was like, you know, the people you meet in college are the friends that you have for life, kind of. Yeah, it was, a, a, you know... Not so fast. If you ever know the different, you know, the show A Different World. and Yeah, yeah. so... I was all excited about college. I went to school in West Texas, though. In West Texas, I always say, and I'm sure there's going to be flack for this, was, shall we say, a little bit behind, if you will, the rest of the country. And I've actually, unfortunately, have examples of how, I used to say they're 50 years behind the rest of the nation, but in, in mentality and some of those kinds of things. But I got to school and, you know, this was like a, another family road trip. I think all the women in my family came. My mom, my grandmother, my great aunt, my grandmother's sister, my great grandmother, who was almost 100. Actually, no, she was over 100 by that time. They all took me to school. So my mother has always been, you know, very neat person. So I had matching comforters. Yeah, anyway. So I get to school and I get there early because I'm in the band. And so I've got band practice starting. I get there, I fix my room up. I go to band practice and I come back and I see, or I guess I'm leaving for band practice anyway. I come back from something and my roommate is there and she's fixed up her bed and I'm like all excited and she's with her mom and I'm, you know, oh, it's so great to meet you. I can't wait. This is going to be great. So I'll see you later. And I leave and I come back and her bed is stripped down completely down to the striped mattress, this young white woman. And so I kind of, I was really kind of floored because like her bed was fully made up, including her little dolls on the bed. Like it was done. She was ready and she was set and she was good. Now I have no idea. I didn't, the first place I, I did not go to was, you know, racism or maybe she didn't want a room with a black girl. I didn't actually go there first, but eventually I had to consider that that actually might've been the situation. And so my mom, I think, in hindsight, read it very clearly. And so she was like, you know, she's like, this could be good. You know, you got your room to yourself. And she's got, I got that matching comforter. I'll just throw it on the bed and, you know, you'll have your whole suite to yourself. So that was, I think, my first experience or understanding of what it actually felt like 
to not be liked because of the color of your skin. So you're, you're, the school that you attended in, in Dallas presumably wasn't, there was no segregation. It was a mixed school. No, I always, I went to a Catholic school. When I was younger, I we went to all-Black Catholic school. But then I never navigated communities that were solely Black. Went to that school. Then we, but, you know, then it was, it was a Catholic school. You know, within the diocese, there were other, you know, schools. And so we were interacting with white kids, you know, whether it's football, cheerleading, you know, competition, whatever it was. And then in junior high, I actually went to a white Catholic school with, you know, a population of both white and Black students. High school, I went to a magnet school, so it was highly diverse. So strange that that's the first time that you encountered. Exactly. And so, and, and even that, you know, I, I think I told you personally the Sound of Music story. Yeah. <laughs> so right, really quickly, I, I love the Sound of Music. It, to this day, is my actual absolute favorite musical. And so there was a audition for the Sound of Music at, um, you know, one of the high schools in the diocese or the, you know, one of the Catholic high schools. And I don't know what got into me to think I could play Maria, but my mother was like, okay. And she took me. She's like, she was just like, not, she didn't dissuade me at all. She's like, well, baby, you know, that's a white musical. There are really no black people in the film. And you, are you sure you want to do this? None of that. She was like, what's the date and the time? We were there on time. Yeah. So. Well, your family were like a mini version of the Von Trapps. <laughs> they, well, they are now kind of, yeah, because it was blended. So we're highly blended. Exactly. exactly and so yeah. we're actually kind of big. Like I've got, you know, yeah, I've got two stepmoms. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, we are like fun, fun traps now. And so, yeah, so yeah, it really was the first realization that I had to actually face the reality is that, you know what, Vaughn, there's some folks that might not like you because of the color of your skin, but that was that. Was that. And then, you know, it was, and then I also realized this was after my freshman, first, you know, freshman year of college. And I came home to do some <laughs> classes at the community college. And I laughed because there are instances in which people, you know, they're raised and they just don't understand. Their lived experience is just so natural and normal to them. It's nothing malicious. It's nothing, there's no anger. And this was actually an example. So I'm taking a summer course while I'm home for the summertime. And one of my professors at the junior college evidently told a young lady in another class that, oh, you know, there's a young lady here, young Black woman who's at Texas Tech. You should meet her because you know, you'll be both be on campus in the fall. And so she comes up to me in the hallway and she's so excited. And she's like, oh my gosh, I did not know there were any colored people at Texas Tech. And I was like, so first of all, I'm 18 by this point. I have never actually heard anyone use the word colored. <laughs> and it, roll, it rolled off this baby's tongue. It was so natural. And it didn't anger me at all because I was like, oh my gosh, this is literally the way she was raised. This is very natural for her. It was, she had a big old, she was so excited. She was visibly excited to meet me. There was no, no, no sarcasm, no. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I wanted, so I was a very different person. I so wanted to tell her, don't use that word, sweetie pie. Don't, <laughs> don't ever let me tell you what not to say when you get on campus and you see some more Black people. And so kind of understanding racism and being Black in America, right? They're different, but they're not, right? So you have people who are completely clueless and they mean no malice, but it's clearly the way they were raised. And it's people who have want nothing to, they just don't want anything to do with mm -hmm. folks of color. So yeah, that was 
actually all a lot in a year and a half, I think. That was quite the wake-up call. And then moving to New York, too, because, you know, people of color come in. I always say that, you know, especially Black folks, because of our history in this country, you know, genetics is a funny thing. And we look very, very different depending on our, the way we were raised, the way, you know, our mixed race or not mixed race. So New York helped me understand that I already knew that there were super fair-skinned Black folks, right? Because that was the world I navigated, right, when I was younger. We had, you know, I knew folks from all, that Black Americans look differently, right? Because of our history in America. Because of just, quite honestly, sexual violence during slavery, right? So we actually come out looking very different. But to understand... It's it's hard. I mean, I coming from a Scottish-Irish background, you know, I experienced bigotry and in a from a different perspective and you know yeah. you look down upon in, in England and some people if you're Scottish and yep. Irish but it's very hard to embrace when you go and I've been here 10 years and I know Bettina's been here a long time as well but to really embrace we can obviously respect it and, and we feel it and see it witness it not so much in New York but we just only read about the institutionalized racism why is it persisting to the degree that it is that today that I really struggle to see why can't, why in this world, inclusive, diverse world, do people still harbour such resentment and fear and whatever is driving it? I just love your perspective on that before we move on. You know, it's the original sin, as some folks call it. For this country, we've actually never, ever dealt with the reality of slavery. It's our original sin. And it's it's funny when I think about some recommended readings um, one of the things is, you know, the New York Times put out a really amazing piece, and I've forgotten the author's name. I've got it sitting to the side. 1619, because this, so this is the 400th year of slavery and, you know, celebrating that in Ghana and, you know, the point of no return. But it's, it's America's original sin. I think it's been, you know, a lot of it has been exposed and, and actually made permissible, sadly, by the current administration. But it's it's really, it's our original sin. It's, it is the stuff that folks don't want to talk about, the folks that, you know, the things that you don't want to deal with. It's, you know, the electoral college and, you know, why it even exists. Could you just uh, explain, because I'm sure a lot, of, I know a lot of people that listen to the podcast are outside of the US. Could you just briefly explain what the electoral college is? Yeah, so, and I'm, I, hopefully I don't, like completely voted. So um, mess it up. Mm-hmm. So the Electoral College is the, it is the system that we use for voting, right? So there's the popular vote, which actually does not elect the president of the United States. Because Hillary won the last one. It, exactly. The Electoral College is a state representation. So the Electoral College is based on the number of people in a particular state. That originated from slavery because you had more slaves in the South than you did the North. And so basically it was a fight (laughs) between the North and the South as to who had the most representation. And so slaves were considered three-fifths of a person. And so one section of the country wanted to make sure that the other section of the country didn't get the upper hand because they had more people. So that's where the Electoral College originates. I hope that was a very simplified version. I hope that makes sense. That's good. But that, to that, when you talk about representation, you mean representation in Washington. Exactly. Representation in the government and particularly at the presidential level. Uh-huh. When you look at 
representation. Um, so like now we're going through the census, right? We're trying to see how many people, right? The representation of congressional, that's very different. That really is popular, if you will, the popular vote. So your, rep, your state, rep, your U.S. representative, right? So each state gets a number of representatives based on the population of that state, which is why we go through the census each year. Senators, everybody gets two. That's very easy. No matter the size, the number of people, you just get two senators. Representatives are based on population. The president is elected based on the electoral college, which could be very easily dismantled or done away with if people were actually willing to do the work that it takes to actually do a, you know, a constitutional amendment. And then that, there are people that are, that are working on that. I think, yeah, folks are working on that. And then gerrymandering, that's a whole other thing. That, that, <laughs> so we don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. So the electoral college, it, it, it's also steeped in racism. And so when you have a contest like we did for the last presidential election, I think people are again reminded, good Lord, we got to get rid of that kind of thing. But then you have to do the work to get rid of it. But, but yeah, I don't even know why we count the popular vote because it actually just makes folks angry when it comes to the yeah. presidential election. But yes, so here we are. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's quite a nice um, point to move on to your education. But I just, you've, the way you've described your childhood feels like one of abundance. Uh, we always ask guests about do they live in an environment of scarcity or abundance, but it does sound like an abundance of love and an environment of, uh, as you say, an environment of service. So it was a shared abundance. Yeah, very much, very much. And I mean, I understand, I think, I have a very good idea of, you know, both abundance and scarcity, especially when my parents divorced, because it, it wasn't exactly a pretty divorce. But then also the scarcity piece, too, is just kind of watching my grandmothers. I think, you know, I love Marshall, Texas to this day. Um, I love visiting. I love going, which is the country, the state, the city, rather, in East Texas, where my, my parents grew up in or around. But it was it was a lot of scarcity. But it was never... Never, ever a lack of love. We didn't need for anything. So I've, I've had the benefit of experiencing a little bit of both. But yeah, abundance. None for me to whine about. <laughs> okay, so you, you studied political science at Texas Tech. Yes. Um, and we've talked about your experience there. And were you, at that time, um, were your ambitions focused on politics? No, you know what? I always, I always want to be a lawyer. Political science, the authoritative allocation of values. So funny. But no, I never wanted to go into politics. I always wanted to go into law and I always wanted to do international work. But I was, uh, fear was very powerful, I think, in my life early on. Fear? Fear of what? Yeah. Nothing and everything. Mm. And so I remember going, so a perfect example of fear is... Like, I was so determined to do the study abroad program. I, like, went my freshman year and talked to the advisor about study abroad um, because I wanted to make sure that I had everything in line by the time my junior year came. But then I never did it. So that's what I mean by fear. What do you think led to you having a, a sense of fear? You know what? I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, and I've spent, lots of time in therapy and it was just so super helpful in cutting through the, you know, the crap, if you will. But I think it's just, I think it's the unknown. I think it's, you know, peer pressure. If it's, you know, is that what 
you're really meant to do? Are you going to make mistakes? Are you going to mess it up? Are they going to tell you no, so don't bother trying kind of thing? I think fear is, yeah, fear and denial are both very powerful. So, yeah, I think when I was younger, yeah, I think I was very afraid, very fearful. Now I've lost my mind. I just do pretty much (laughs) everything. But anyway, so like, what the hell was I thinking when I decided to do this? But here we are. But undergrad, undergrad was, you know, again, challenges with whether it's dyslexia or reading things backwards. I actually had a professor in one of my political, I can't remember what political class it was, who actually got my exam and he was like, what happened here? He literally gave me my exam verbally because he knew I knew the material. And he's like, I don't understand what's happening. And I told him, you know, things were starting to look backwards and, you know, putting things in the negative made me nervous and it like freaked me out. And then I would read it and reread it and I couldn't get it. And so, so, you know, having professors like that, another professor who was like hard ass professor, and actually it was one of the TA or the RAs in my dorm who actually spoke to him and said, you know, she has really good ideas. He's like, well, she better voice them. <laughs> but he actually was a lot kinder to me and actually gave me a little bit more attention after that. So it was folks like that who actually could see past, whether it was fear or, you know, confusion or whatever it was, that were super helpful to me. And by the time my senior year came, I was on, you know, I was on student government. I was a freshman council sponsor. And then it was time to go. (laughs) By the time I got comfortable. So rather than focus on law, you're, after graduation, you ended up in social services and child support enforcement. How did that evolve and emerge? I did. So I still, you know, I thought about, I kind of wanted to, you know, keep thinking about the law thing and exactly what, you know, what it was I wanted to do. And so did an internship in the summertime right after school in child support enforcement and actually ended up working there, I think for about, yeah, five or six years in child support enforcement and then worked for the the state of Texas and then worked there a little bit, for the state a little bit longer in DWI license revocation. That was quite the experience. What What does that stand for? So um, driving while intoxicated. (laughs) Exactly. So that, oh my goodness, that was quite the education. It's like, I don't, to this day, it's like, if you want to drive, if you know, if you want to drink, drink, but do it at home, don't drive. Because, you know, the police officers that I met, the attorneys that I met, you know, one police officer told me about pulling a little seven-year-old girl out of a car. She was dead, obviously, but, you know, just kind of, you know, thinking about the way you as an individual choose to navigate this world and how your own behavior actually impacts the lives of others. It was very, yeah. So that was a few years, actually a couple of years, not even, it was very short stint. And then they actually closed the office because I actually moved back to West Texas. I said, I'd never go back to West Texas when I left Lubbock. But of course, never say never. So I ended up taking a job with the state in Midland, Texas, which um, I really enjoyed. And that was actually working for court-appointed special advocates, the CASA program, which is a national program focused on providing guardian ad litem services to kids. So- How'd you spell it? CASA. CASA, C-A-S-A. And it stands for court-appointed special advocates. And I still have a a special spot for that organization now. So I ran the program in Midland, actually worked really hard with the judges there to actually, you know, bring the program up to a, 
a level and a standard that where the judges actually knew that they could rely on the work of the volunteers that we were training and actually ended up bringing in Big Spring, Texas, which is about, I think it's about 50 miles from Midland. Actually, the judge in Big Spring heard about the program in Midland. The judge, you know, they talked to each other. And so he said, you know, I need your help in Big Spring. And so we actually expanded the program. So really very proud of the work that I did and the volunteers did. But it also gave me a very clear view of where the law, especially policy, actually is kind of behind, especially when it comes to children. You know, one attorney guardian at Lightham or an attorney for a child told me once, and she said, you know, the law is not made for children. The law is never created for children. So it's, it's not always protective of children. And so one of the things that drove me back to graduate school was to understand how you get on the front end of the policy that you have to actually deal with. Because, you know, there were times where the judge is like, well, I can't do that because that's not actually, that's not actually law, right? I can only... It's interesting that you, when we interviewed Natalie Bridgman Fields from Accountability Council that you're, you're on the board for, uh, she told the story about how she believed that law was a way to create social justice and work through law, but realized after 10 years, it was never going to be moving fast enough and have the agility to be able to affect real change and better representation for people that really need it. So it sounds like there's a parallel there with the route that you went. Yep, very much a parallel. And I think that's actually one of the reasons that I think both the CASA program and the advocacy that we did on behalf of children actually, um, and it's so funny because you see that when you're younger, like when your parents are advocating for something or they're, you know, speaking on behalf of something and you don't understand how it actually work feeds into the world in which we live. But I think that was one of the reasons that, you know, for grad school and then also understanding how, you know, I don't know if you know the, um, this is just a bill, the schoolhouse rock. I don't know if you ever have ever seen any of those. There were these little ditties that you um, listened to on Saturday morning cartoons. And they were like, I'm just, a, you know, it literally told you how a bill, or a, you know, a legislative bill was formed. It was for children, obviously. You know, I'm just a bill. And it sitting here on Capitol Hill. And, you know, yeah, anyway, there were these many lessons. And, it, you know, when getting to grad school, I began to understand, like, what it really, like Natalie says, what it really takes to actually shift something And actually, at the end of the day, it's folks like Natalie, it's folks, community activists who are actually pushing, right, representatives and legislators to actually make these changes and make them now. Um, And so kind of understanding when I go back, when I'm back to grad school is that it's one thing you have to understand policy and how you navigate it. And you have to understand who's actually going to be responsible for pushing those things. And it's the accountability councils of the world. It's the, the Make the Roads. It's the DocuBlack, UndocuBlack, you know, um, United We Dream, all these grassroots organizations that are pushing policymakers, policy folks to actually make the changes that are actually needed in order to make it a better society. Those are the things that I learned. And I also realized I couldn't do direct services anymore. It was wearing me down. So I was just trying to figure out how do I get the money to the people who do this work. <laughs> and that's why you went to grad school. That's why I went to grad school. And that's why I, I took a job in both fundraising and philanthropy. I didn't know which one was going to be the right track. And I'm really an introvert by nature, which that's the other thing, too, is I didn't realize that until I was grown. I think so many things would have been different if I really understood my personality as a child. And actually, my parents understood my personality as a child because my mother is a complete extrovert. But 
Yeah. I mean, I think that those are the things that helped me realize that philanthropy was the place where I could actually try to make some of the most, the best change. So you, you said, um, and obviously you, you made that pivot to philanthropy coming out of grad school from NYU. Was that NYU? The New School for Social Research. Oh, New School, right. You said a minute ago about philanthropy or fundraising. Uh, aren't the two completely intertwined? They're completely different, but they are um, partners in the work. That's right. probably the best way to say it. So, like, I have a, a very deep respect for fundraisers or development experts uh-huh. because to be a good fundraiser or development expert, it's it's not just writing grants, right? It's relationship building. It's understanding both your programs and the, the, the world in which they're navigating. How does your program fit with other things? Like development directors or fundraisers have to be able to explain all this. Then there's the financial piece. Then there's the board piece. So because of just my personality, I was never going to be a development director, fundraiser, never a full you know, development director. I was never going to be what an organization needed. And I have colleagues who do that work and they do it very, very well. So yeah, fundraising is finding and securing the money and philanthropy is the source of the money. And while they're very different areas of expertise or knowledge, learning, the way you work and operate, they're definitely partners. And then the distribution through programs and program teams who identify and manage relationships with the NGOs on the ground. Exactly. And, and you know, well, so it's funny you say that because, you know, there's this saying in philanthropy, when you've met one foundation, you've met one foundation, right? So you can never actually, <laughs> there's, no, there's no clear profile on philanthropy because the way you just said it is actually, you know, the way I subscribe is that it's a partnership, right? Uh-huh. So- I have some money to give away. I want to partner with an organization that's actually doing this work on the ground. A grantee-centered approach. Grantee meaning the person that's receiving the money to do the work. Not everyone takes that approach in philanthropy. So for me, my ethos, the way you described it, is actually how I prefer. So a grantee-centered approach, but that's not everyone. Okay, we'll leave part one there. Come back tomorrow for part two, where we dive deep into Yvonne's amazing work in the philanthropic sector. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.